0: welcome to revolutionize your retirement radio bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life here's your host certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author dr dorian mincer i want to welcome everybody to my fourth tuesday revolutionize your retirement interview with expert series i'm dorian mincer your host So now I want to just proceed because we're going to need to stop pretty much right at the top of the hour. So make sure you send your questions and comments in so I can integrate them. So I am so delighted to have Mary Pfeiffer Pfeiffer, here. See, I almost said it wrong again, but Mary told me that it's like Pfeiffer, so I want to say it right, with me today. And we're focusing on her latest book, which is Women Rowing North navigating life's currents and flourishing as we age. And just to tell you a little bit about Mary, she graduated in cultural anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley in 1969 and received her Ph.D. from the University of Nebraska in clinical psychology in 1977. She's worked most of her life as a therapist. Excuse me and it's taught at the University of Nebraska and Nebraska Wesleyan University. She was a Rockefeller scholar in residence at Bellagio and has received two American Psychological Association presidential citations, one of which she returned to protest psychologist's involvement in the enhanced interrogations at Guantanamo Bay. She's the author of 10 books, including Reviving Ophelia, which is now having its 25th anniversary reprint, and her latest, Women Rowing North. Four of her books have been New York Times bestsellers, and she's a contributing writer for the New York Times. And she was also chosen uh, in 2019 as one of the influencers of aging by Next Avenue. I'm particularly delighted, Mary, to have you here. You know, when we did some emailing, Mary and I overlapped. Um, a little bit at Berkeley, at UC Berkeley. Oh, really? Right. And I feel like we're kindred kindred spirits. We're pretty much the same age. I'm actually a year older, being right there at the cusp of the leading age or at the leading age of the boomers. And also share your interest in and in studying of cultural anthropology, psychology, feminism, positive psychology. And, you know, we've kind of gone through the same life stages and are at a very similar life stage, too, and I'm currently dealing with some hip pain, so I, I very much feel that I resonate with so many parts of your book. So I'm really just delighted to have you here. So, you know, I find it interesting that it's sort of the 25th anniversary of Reviving Ophelia, where you were really challenging and talking about the stereotypes and the narratives of girls during teenage years. And now, you know, you've kind of come full circle of writing about women. Transitioning from mid-age to older age. So I, I thought it might be good just to, I mean, and it just to, I know it's a more superficial question, but just kind of what led you to write this book now? And, and, I, you know, I know you talk about it in your book, but maybe tell the listeners how, how and why you've written the book and how you chose your title, because I know you specifically chose the word <sighs> rowing.
1: And I yes, thought that might yes. be a good
0: place to start.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, and Doria, it's interesting you mentioned um, reviving Ophelia because I think this, this life stage that women face from about 60 on most mostly is like that, that early adolescent stage for girls in that the definitions the culture offers girls or women our age are so at variance with our own efforts to define ourselves, with our own sense of who we are and truly want to be. So, for example, one thing I discovered when I was writing this book about older women, I chose the topic because I always try to read and write about what I most want to learn And as Mm -hmm. I was moving into this life stage, as my friends were, I realized we have no role models. We have very little sense for how to do 30 more years at 60 and be happy. And I also realized we're moving into a time when there'll be some losses and changes that we don't necessarily like. And yet, at the same time, many of my friends were saying to me, this is the happiest time of my life. So I was really struck by that paradox between sort of, what we all know is inevitable as we age and how women were actually feeling. And I was also struck by the paradox that women, no matter their age, refused to say they were old. When I tell women I'm writing a book about old age, they'd either immediately go, I'm not old or they would say to me, you're not old. But what they were really saying is I refuse to, identify with the cultural caricatures and stereotypes and negative images that Western civilization has of older women. I wanted to find myself. So I I see the parallels between reviving and women roaring north in that need for self-definition, for new ways of seeing how to be in this life stage and be happy and growing and thriving. Flourishing is a word I use quite a bit Mm -hmm. in the new book. And I chose the word rowing for my my journey in metaphor, because I think to be happy in this life stage requires a quite a bit of work. If you're not careful, if you don't work to become better, you can grow bitter in this life stage. I mean, we really have two choices. We can, we can transform ourselves into bigger people with, with more interests and more empathy and more zest for the moment or we can we can grow stagnant and and bitter. And so I I wanted to write about I wanted to discover the process by which I could grow and flourish. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to write about that process as I watched it through women my age. And I only interviewed women that I felt were flourishing. There's women who aren't flourishing, but I felt they had very few lessons to teach. So I I deliberately chose women to interview from all over the country who I thought had a lesson for us in terms of how they were managed to cope with whatever difficult situation they were in and still be happy. And can you...
0: Well, let me just mention one thing about the structure of your book, again, for people who haven't read it. And I want to just encourage people, it's it's really a wonderful book. We're reading it in a book group that I'm part of, too, which has been quite a lovely experience and for all of the same age. But I just want to mention that what what Mary has done is she's divided it into four parts. The first is of all sort of what you're talking about now, the challenges of aging, the ageism, internalized ageism, caregiving, loss, loneliness. Part two is the travel skills necessary for this river journey understanding ourselves, skillful choices, community building, managing our narratives and gratitude and the importance of being useful. Part three, kind of the lifeboat. The importance of long-term loving relationships, whether it be a partner, spouse, family, friends, and the importance really of women friends for women and the need to be interdependent. And in part four, the reward, sort of as you're talking about, too, of the life stage, authenticity, enhanced perspective, and bliss. And I I just wanted to mention the structure because I think it's just helpful for people to have a sense of, you know, how you've approached it and also as you say, you've interviewed women who have sort of done well and consider themselves happy, and there are four women you followed. And I know during this interview I'm going to ask you to tell us more about about them. But one of the questions that actually came from my book group is, since you said you you know, and I think it's true, we we want to learn more about what we need to learn. What has the writing of the book been like for you? What have what have you learned that you're able to share about yourself, and it's a very broad question, but about yourself in this life stage?
1: Well, first of all, the, the first thing I learned was interviewing women and talking to women was how resilient they were. And I just heard story after story of of beautiful moments of coping, and so... One of the things I picked up quite early was the idea that gratitude is a survival skill Mm -hmm. and that the more women are suffering, the more likely they are to have really deep survival skills. And it isn't because they're being nice and grateful. It's because gratitude is what pulls them out of despair. And so, for example, one of the women I interviewed for the book has a has a very serious disease and she's wheel bear, wheelchair bound and can't use her hands very well and, and just had a lot of difficulty navigating. She also happens to be very poor. And yet, when I went to see her, she en- ended up being the example I used of gratitude in the mm-hmm. chapter on gratitude because she was just... Mm-hmm grateful for everything. I take her lunch about once a month. And last time I took Mm -hmm. her lunch, I told my husband, now I know Sally's going to like this lunch. And Jim goes, well, how do you know? And I said, because I've never taken her lunch, that she didn't just say, Mm -hmm. oh, this is just what I wanted to eat today. And so I learned that the relationship between suffering and gratitude is much more complicated than I thought. And that in fact, The, the most grateful people tend to be people who have used gratitude to climb out of despair and they've become experts at gratitude. About myself, I would say that I've, I've really benefited from what I put together. Like, for example, there's a chapter on uh, building a good day and the elements of a good day. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of aspects of that, but one of them is having just comforting rituals and routines in a day that you can look forward to every morning, no matter what's going on with your life. And I've built more of those really simple little routines in my day. For example, I sit up and drink some coffee and and just watch. Right now, the sun isn't coming up. When I get up, I get up early, but watch <laughs> the day come upon Nebraska where I live and I I'm doing some stretches and I'm going to a class every day and I try to see at least woman one woman friend every day and these things all help me just feel balanced and happy when I wake up in the morning that I know I'll have some small pleasures and certainly one one tool that I had before I wrote this book, but I've seen it evidenced in so many other women that are resilient, is this ability, no matter what situation we're in, to look for something beautiful. One of the the things that I learned to do writing this book was called Looking for Evidence of Love in the Universe, where as I move around the world, I just am looking for any sign of love and connection, attachment, deep attachment between people. And if I see it, I, I stop and look at it in a second and then I make a mental photograph of it. I, I bracket it with a little frame and just take a mental photo because to me as a psychologist and, and a mother and a daughter, the, the idea of attachment is one of the most beautiful ideas in the human race. And so just seeing attachment is something that gives me joy. I actually learned a lot from writing this book Mm -hmm. about how to frame the experience of growing older in positive ways. And again, since I'll be growing older until I'm gone, I think it was a useful It was a useful time for me to spend working this out. And I've also heard from a lot of women that the book has been helpful to them, which is, of course, for any writer, a wonderful experience.
0: Can can you elaborate a little more on sort of, and and you do it so beautifully in the book, but how you frame the experience of growing older? Because I know you talk about resilience and the importance of intention and attention and making choices of how to... Deal with I mean we can't control everything, but how we respond is something mm-hmm. we can control. Can you elaborate because I think it's just you know some wonderful wisdom that you have to share about that
1: right well, and that's really the core of the book. The core question is how do we cultivate resilient responses to all the challenges we face and I think that the resilient resiliency is built by attention, careful attention, and intention. So we can choose what we pay attention to. We'll Whatever we look for, we'll find. If we're looking for love, if we're looking for joy, if we're looking for things to appreciate, if we're looking for calmness, we will find those things. If we're looking for trouble, if we're looking for <laughs> things to be upset about, goodness knows there's plenty in American culture today. So one of the things I say is happiness is a choice and a set of skills. And the choice is really critical. I I don't think it's ever too late to learn to be a happy person. I mean, for example, I I would not claim that I myself am a paradigm, paradigm of happiness or a naturally sunny person. What I would say is over the course of 70 years, I've had enough practice at building skills that I've, I've learned some things. I've, I've learned some things about how to be happy that I didn't know when I was younger and that these things are very important for holding our lives in place. Attitude isn't everything, but it's almost everything. And if you wake up in the morning and, and immediately set your intention, that I'm going to make this a good day and I'm going to make the people around me happy and I'm going to make myself happy, you're off to a pretty good start. And then the skills, I mentioned the skill of gratitude. Another skill is the skill of reasonable expectations. For example, if we expect that our adult children are going to want to hear all of our opinions about how they read their lives, We're probably going to be pretty unhappy people, and we aren't going to have very good relationships with those children. My Aunt Grace was a a very wise woman and a a contented woman. Nobody gets to be happy all the time in any life stage, and especially as we age, life's sorrows and joys are just as intermingled as, as sea salt and water. I mean, we're constantly dealing with both. But one of the things my Aunt Grace said as she got older was, I get what I want but I know what to want. And so that is really an important part of happiness, is just setting reasonable expectations. Also an important aspect is noticing our own contentment. Last night I just happened to have a stir fry that my husband helped me cut up, and, and we ended up sitting and we heard some foxes sitting and listening for those foxes and watching for them, and then watching a good television program. And at the end of the night I remember just thinking, Well, you know, I'm really happy. This has just really been a a good night. And that is something I didn't learn to do until i wrote this book this simple thing of observing and marking my own contentment when i was aware of it so i write about a lot of life skills but another one by the way is humor and and i'll tell you a little story about humor i was talking to my friend eve about her mother yolanda and her mother had died recently she'd been a woman who never used any kind of drugs she went to the doctor to have ease and that's the only time she ever went to a doctor she never even would take an aspirin or anything like that but when she was dying she had pneumonia and she was in a lot of pain breathing and and she was in an ICU and and the doctor came in and he said Yolanda I'd really like to give you some morphine for your your pain and she started to shake her head no and and make her statement about I don't take drugs And Eve kind of looked at her imploringly, like, please, Mother, do this. So she nodded her head she would take this this shot. And she'd been all clenched up and just kind of in a grimace. And then when she got this shot, her body just immediately relaxed. And she winked at her daughter, Eve, and said, what a fool I have been. I should have <laughs> taken up drugs long ago. And they both left. You know, it was a good moment to make a joke. And so that is a really important thing, too, is just figuring out how to rescue a bad moment with a joke or an awareness of something that is, is positive.
0: Yeah, it's like how, how to make the <clears throat> lemonade out of the lemons, <laughs> in
1: a sense. It's very much yeah, like that. Man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It it ties into another question I wanted to ask, which, I mean, in this case, it sounds like her daughter was the one who sort of gave her permission. But, you know, I I know for myself and through work and I know through reading the book that we're similar in this, that it's so easy to be socialized to sort of take care of other people and not necessarily take care of ourselves. And it's also hard for some of us to ask for help. And I know Mm -hmm. you talk about that, and I wonder if you could elaborate, because that's, I think, another really important skill that we need to develop throughout life, but particularly now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, women, basically, our boomer generation of women were socialized not to have needs. You know, we were supposed to be nice. We were supposed to be good. We were supposed to meet other people's emotional needs and other needs. And I mean, I remember watching my my aunts and they'd cook these big family meals, which meant killing chickens and making biscuits and scraping corn and so on and so on. They'd be in the kitchen all day and then when dinner time came, everybody'd sit around this big round family table out in eastern Colorado, and my aunts wouldn't sit down. They'd stand at attention behind the table so that if the biscuit plate needed refilled or the iced tea jug needed refilled, they could run, take care of that right away. And that was the model for what a good woman mm-hmm. was like. Well, nobody taught us when we were girls to take care of ourselves. So if we know how to do that, we've learned on our own. And, and in general, the world doesn't particularly encourage us to do that because we're such good skilled caretakers for the most part mm-hmm. but i talk about a couple things one is is the power of yes and the power of no and the power of yes is simply the power to listen to your own heart and do what it uh tells you you most want to do uh to actually pay attention to this 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 part of you that's saying Mary you need to lie down and rest or Mary you know you've always wanted to go to a beach in the winter or whatever it is then the power of no is learning to say to other people no (laughs) you know someone will ask you to do them a favor can you be on a certain committee with them or would you mind watching their dog while they're gone and of course sometimes we all say yes and sometimes We all keep appointments we did not make. We have no choice but to say yes. But sometimes we actually have a choice if we allow ourselves permission to believe that. And one thing that's very hard for women is to just say no and not start making all kinds of excuses and over-explaining themselves. So one thing I talk about in the book is just simply learning to say no. And it, you can modify it slightly with that won't work for me or no, I won't be able to do that. But that's it. It's, it doesn't really need to be explained further. It's just a way to set and hold a boundary and protect. You know, as we age, our time becomes very precious. We start having intimations of mortality. We know the runway is short. and And because our time is so precious, I think most of us become aware of we, we want to protect it, you know, we wanna use that time for what's most important to us. Absolutely. And
0: I have I must say I'm so glad you said yes to being part of this interview because I know it would be easy to say no, but I, I think you're so right about the boundaries and we're not necessarily socialized to be able to say you know, this isn't good for me, but this this is, and I think just being aware of of that choice is is so important. Um, it leads. Well, I, I want to integrate some of the questions. I know I have so many questions that I've come up with, but I want to integrate some of the questions from people um, on the call. And one is from I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Lourdes from the UK, who's she said it's her first time being part of this call, mm-hmm. and clearly she's read your book, and she says, Mary says that we grow by developing our moral imaginations and expanding our carrying capacities
1: for pain and bliss. Can you give us a few strategies for building them? Yeah, well, first to define moral imagination. Right. To me, that's my ultimate value system. What's good to me is that which increases our moral imaginations. What's evil is that which decreases them. So, for example, reading a book about people... I'm reading a book right now about workers from the Philippines called The Good Provider is One Who Leaves, and it's teaching me a great deal about the situation of a third of the Philippine people at any one time are away from that island and their families working to provide cash so their families can survive in an overcrowded island without enough work. And so anything like increases one's moral imagination, interacting with people differently than oneself or developing a relationship with a wild animal. For example, learning to befriend a bird or a squirrel to the point you can actually have a sort of a conversation with it. All of those things increase one's moral imagination. And that's really, really an important thing. And my goal for myself, and and I think it's a goal worthy of all people although we all get to choose our goals is to by the time i die be able to include the entire circle of life in mm-hmm. in my circle of caring and and have empathy for and a desire to love and help whatever is live so that's that's a really important part of of what i see progress on on life's journey and what was the second part of lord's question dory so You said that by developing our moral imaginations and expanding
0: our caring capacities for pain and bliss.
1: Oh yeah, can you give us some strategies
0: for that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, we all suffer, but we don't all grow. And Mm -hmm. what's involved in expanding our caring capacities for pain and bliss is actually facing our own emotions honestly and if we if we repress our emotions if we numb ourselves out so we don't feel them we can't grow because emotions give us the essential information we need to understand ourselves and to heal so you know for let's just take for example something like a death Say we lose our life partner, I mean, of course, our original reaction is to be stunned, and then there's a the time when our hearts are just filled with grief and and we're we 're barely we 're barely walking we 're so grief stricken but then after that, there's a time when we 're honestly allowing that grief in, feeling that grief, exploring it. Trying to figure out how to accommodate that grief and move forward to a, a different position. And that process of facing honestly one's emotions, even the saddest, most fearful, most painful ones, allows us to rebuild our vitality and zest for life. And also, oftentimes, we grow a deeper soul and we have more mm-hmm. capacity then for the next problem that comes along. So, for example, I tell a story in the book about my friend Abby, who was, when this incident occurred, she was almost dead from cancer and cancer treatment. She had ovarian cancer, and she'd been through some some really rough treatment. And we're sitting outside at a sidewalk cafe in San Francisco, and she's telling me that She doesn't even know who she is anymore, that she's just a shell of her former self, that she has no energy, that she just barely wants to walk down a street, let alone uh, backpack up a mountain and so on, and that she she just feels gone and, and doesn't remember who she was even. And just then, we'd ordered tea and croissants, and her tea and croissants came, and she tasted her almond croissant, and she goes... Oh, the Abby that loved croissants is coming back to me. Well, that's an example of, of being able to move beyond sorrow and into something more hopeful.
0: That's a lovely example.
1: And you have some others in the book, too, they there.
0: They are quite lovely. So I want to still keep incorporating some questions from some listeners. Joanne from Massachusetts wants to know more about the role of spirituality in the women that you are talking about in in engendering gratitude, connection, and positive engagement. And she says, another way to ask this question is, did you find a connection between spirituality, however defined, and resilience?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. It's, it's hard for me to answer because it's a big question and I haven't thought about it. I will say that, depending how loosely you define spirituality, the women I felt that were almost without a question, every woman I talked to felt deeply connected to something much larger than herself whether it was I interviewed a native woman who felt very connected to the earth and also her long line of ancestors. I asked her what tribe she was from, and it took her an hour and a half to tell me because she went back to the very beginnings of knowledge about her tribe, the Iroquois, who then later migrated, broke off part of and migrated as a different tribe into Nebraska. She was very connected to 300 years of stories about her people. And so that was one form of spirituality, of course. Many of the women I, I talked to would have said their deepest spiritual connection was to the natural world or to their families. There were quite a few Christians I interviewed who felt that grace and the concept of a loving universe was was critical to their sense of safety in the world. I per- I'm, Myself, I'm a Buddhist, and for me it's great comfort to feel a deep sense of, of interconnection with
0: mm-hmm.
1: with other people. And and you know, the, the Buddhists don't really believe there's a separate self. They they really believe we all share one immense human heart. And that may be another way to talk about moral imagination is just realizing that mm-hmm. we human beings have a gamut of emotions. That we all share, no matter rich or poor, no matter whether we live in South Africa or Alaska or Nebraska or Boston, we all share the same gamut of emotions. And as a therapist and someone who's interviewed hundreds of people over the years for books, one of the things I've become more convinced of as I move through my life It's how true it is that we're all part of one immense human heart, and for me, I guess I would say that's a spiritual belief as well as a realistic interpretation of the world as I see it.
0: And you also elaborate about that in the book too, about the importance of interconnectedness and community. And and one of the points that you make, you know, that maybe you can comment on now is, you know, that as we get older. We tend to spend more time alone, but that and that there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. And maybe you could speak to that because we know that loneliness and disconnection is really a killer and is just yeah, dreadful. But
1: absolutely,
0: I'd maybe speak well, to that. Well, a couple yeah.
1: things about that. You know, a lot of people say older people are lonelier, and what what I think they're looking at is there's some statistics that came out that I'm actually getting ready to write an op-ed on Women Roy North for the New York Times because the paperback's coming out, so my editors requested that I do that. So I just was looking at all that loneliness this morning, research before you called, and when we're in our 40s, we spend about 70 80% of time with other people, whether it's at work or we have children at home or a partner. By the time we're in our 70s, most people spend less than 30% of their day with other people, unless, I mean, if they're married, of course, they may have someone in their home or their partner in their home. But but most of us spend much more time alone. And I write in the book about the difference between loneliness and solitude, and essentially, the difference is what you call it. And if you call it mm-hmm. solitude, that implies that you have within yourself a host of ways you can make that time meaningful and and, and enjoyable and, and ex- experience things that, that matter to you. For example, one thing I've found about my women friends, and I, I write about in the book, is many of us need solitude as we grow older. We, we crave it. We really appreciate it. It's, it's become something we really value very much. On the other hand, and here's an interesting study I just read about, this morning, there's a uh, study out of people in 2018 by Cigna that just came out. And it's a survey of loneliness by demographic groups. And the least lonely demographic is, is the boomers. We are the least lonely group and women are the least lonely of the two genders. So women are the least lonely as well as being the most happy. Older women are the least lonely and the most happy of any demographic groups in America. And the way I, I explain that to myself, I, I have no empirical support for this, but the way I'm trying to make sense of those 2 were alone more and we're the least lonely, is is the idea that, We know how to have friends. You know, we, we know how to get together with people for dinner or call our brother in Seattle and visit with him about his week or have a card party or meet some people and go for a hike. We grew up with parents who knew how to be social and have company and, and we grew up as children mostly interacting with people and we're, we're a rather clubby, generation, we turned to peers when we left home. We're very peer in a generation and and we've stayed both very focused and loving with our families and and very engaged with our families, but we've also stayed much more likely stayed connected to our friends and a group of people. And I don't know about you, Dory, but I've still got some friends from college years that I'm Mm -hmm. still connected to. So over the course of, it's been over 50 years since I've been in college, I've got a lot of friends that have collected over the years. So, And I, I think that's true with many of us women. Right. Yeah, I think it's more true
0: probably for women than men. Although I must say my husband I always say is somewhat of an exception because he he has kept up with a whole group of some college friends and for him since he's in his 80s it's you know he just was at his 65th reunion. So I just find that wonderful and for me yeah it was like 50 years ago in college, it's so important, but I do, do you find that, I mean, I know you speak more in the book about women, but I, I do think there's somewhat of a gender difference that it's, it's perhaps easier. Yeah, for well, actually that was
1: in the study, there is a gender difference. Yeah. And yeah. again, my personal explanation of that, not empirically backed, is right. that women are, are taught to connect. We we grow up socialized to be connectors. Men are taught to individuate, and they're taught to value work and accomplishment, and we're taught to value relationships and connection. And so what happens is those things that women were taught that can be a burden in some ways on us all of our Mm -hmm. lives also end up in a kind of both-and way. Being our, our, one of our greatest strengths as we get older because we're used to talking to friends. We're used to making the, the, taking the initiative and, and making the openings for gatherings and ways for women to be together. For example, I've got a group of friends. I think it's been about 30 years now. We go on a big, now we cabin camp. We used to camp outside, but we, 20 of us go on a big camping trip once a year and fill each other in on our lives. And that's something that men are not as likely to do, to just organize their friends to do things together, call up their friends to see how they're doing. And so I I think it's it's, men tend to define themselves by their work. And when they quit working, often they're lonely because their friends were work friends. Whereas women they have work friends and they define themselves by their work too, but they're also more likely to do some extra work to keep women friends in their lives. Mm -hmm. And you
0: stress how important it is. And I know from my own experience that, Women friends are are just so crucial and important to, and that sense of community with them of people that you can turn to or call whenever you need to. It's really important to have and to
1: know. Yeah, I call women friends my mental health insurance policy. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's wonderful about close women friends is. So many of us women do a lot of caretaking, and it's our close women friends that take care of us, and it's a mutual caretaking. I mean, half of the time we're taking care of them, half of the time they're taking care of us, but those are lovely relationships.
0: Right. Absolutely. So let me integrate a few more questions from listeners. So Thomas from Copenhagen says that you write in Women Rowing North a sort of general statement about human development. And he quotes, we don't heal without hurting. The cure for the pain is the pain. And his question is, is pain... In your opinion, both illness being tied to a wheelchair, as you 've already talked about, or do you also think about existential pain, feeling lost depressed, et cetera and could you elaborate on this
1: mhm mhm well that 's thomas' very, has asked a very good question it 's a very difficult question because there there's a sort of there 's physical pain there's there 's the pain of loss there's there's the pain of of you know, losing our friends, losing our own functioning, the pain of awareness that our time is finite. There's that kind of emotional pain. And then there's, there's depression. And then there's a kind of existential despair for the human race. And they're, they're all different. But when I say the cure for the pain is the pain and we grow through pain, I don't think we, I don't think we all grow through all pain. I think that we grow through pain if we have a process by which we can go through pain so for example people can become very stuck in depression and negative self-talk they're not really growing they're ruminating and unless they figure out a process to 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 take that kind of suffering and rejigger it into something better and and green they'll continue to suffer likewise there's people that that have a great deal of pain and suffering that don't seem to grow at all, except they they maybe get bitter and sullen and and more depressed. And so it's a it's a very difficult topic. Do we all you know how do we grow from all kinds of pain? My own experience as a therapist is that almost everybody I I saw as a client came in in pain. I mean, that's why they were there. Nobody goes to a therapist and pays money to talk to a stranger for 50 minutes if they aren't in significant pain at the moment. And that there actually is a fairly clear-cut and practical, workable way to approach learning from pain. The other thing I've noticed is people who, appear to have never suffered, who've had, of course, we all suffer, but their suffering compared to most people appears to be minor, you know, they're, they're good looking and rich and had wonderful parents and were popular and athletic and so on. And their lives have been kind of golden people that have never suffered become insufferable at some point, because I really do think that suffering is, is necessary for the development of empathy and empathy to me is is the primary vehicle for growth a, a deep understanding of our connection with other people and that we are we are never alone in our suffering that when we suffer we join a community of people going back 200,000 years that have suffered in the same ways we have suffered well and it sounds like that's so so important and
0: and part of i think one of the important premises of your book, too, of that that connecting with others, that you know, that sense of the generations of empathy and community and and being connected, just sort of as you said before. I just think it's it, it's such an important underscoring of your book that that makes it really special.
1: Yeah. Well, another uh, just a small example of that because if we don't watch out, this can sound like. It can sound abstract and it can also sound a little Pollyannaish. And I what I wanna give is just a very specific example of what I mean of empathy and, and, and sort of actions that that come from suffering that, that result in something good. So I have a casual friend and her husband's a musician like mine and last Friday night, just very last minute, we decided to go hear husband her husband play at a coffee house. So when we got there, the coffee house wasn't very crowded, and my friend was sitting alone. And when I sat down, she told me that her mother was in hospice and probably going to die that night, that she'd been with her all day, and the nurses had told her to leave and take a break, but that they'd probably be calling her back any time to come be with her mother. So she was sitting there alone. She, it was one of those women who had not asked for help or support, or, of course, I would have intentionally been with her. I just happened to be accidentally with her. And her husband was playing music, Celtic music and, and trying to play her mother's favorite songs and her favorite songs, Mm -hmm. but just instinctively without even thinking about it, I just held her hand all through the concert. I just, Oh, her mother's dying. I bet she needs someone to hold her hand. And, uh, it was good for both of us. I I mean, it helped me remember my own suffering when my mother died. It helped me realize how universal that experience is that we all at some point lose our mothers and, and that it's it's part of the human condition, but it's a hard part. And then it increased my holding her hand, increased my love for her because Mm -hmm. I was with her at a critical moment of her life. And, and she, when her mother did die that night, she texted me the next morning and said how important that I was there, that I held her hand. And so these are what I'm talking about, these little acts that that really take no great effort. They, they just take a desire to be present and connect with other people, can, can just make a huge difference in our own loneliness, in our own sense of agency. Do we matter? Are we worth something to the universe? and in our own developing capacity to tolerate pain in ourselves and other people.
0: Hmm. That segues, I think, beautifully into this question from Dorothy, who's from um, Virginia, who says, would you talk a little bit more about the paradox of invisibility in aging? It seems as I become more invisible in the culture, I'm more visible to myself.
1: Well, that's I I think so, too. I I think there's a I mean, obviously, we can say some bad things about invisibility in the, for example, I notice this if I go out to a restaurant with a really pretty young woman that I'm pretty much invisible to the waiter (laughs) while he falls all over himself attending the pretty young woman. And so we all have those experiences of, oh, I don't think this person really is very aware and attentive to me. But there's two things about that. Invisibility also gives us a great deal of freedom. And in in my case, and I think in many women's case, they aren't all that unhappy to be spared the male gaze. The male gaze can be flattering and and make us feel good, but it can also feel intrusive and and pornographic and unpleasant. And so for me, at least, that's a relief. And I, I think for some women it is, for some it isn't. But another thing is, once you're invisible, Nobody really cares or notices much what you're doing. So if you want to wear sweatpants to the grocery store, you can. You know, if you start being more yourself in terms of, of you like to swear, so you start swearing a little more, or you like to, you know, you just, you're more outspoken, you're more relaxed about who you are, Uh Really, in general, that won't make much difference because to many people, you're invisible. So I think it, it, it makes life a little bit more free and fun. And then the other thing is, it's true that when we look inwards for definition, because the culture is no longer working so hard to define us wherever we are, that's when we do find our true selves. So with Reviving Ophelia, I wrote about the importance of girls going inwards and asking themselves questions to build a true self and paying attention to their own hearts. And there's a theme of that in Women Roy North, too, mm-hmm. that we really have the freedom to explore what is it we truly want and, and also grow into our whole authentic selves. We become more of who we always are and wanted to be,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is... Becoming less diminished, in, in a sense. I mean, that's part of what you say so nicely in the book too. That we aren't, as an older woman, just more of a diminished self, but we have a chance to grow more into our very real, authentic, visible mm-hmm. self that trusts ourselves. Just like your beautiful example of holding this woman's hand. You know, trusting. You know, our our intuition and our connection with other people, and not being afraid of. Oh right. my God, what? You know, what's somebody, How's somebody going to judge me?
1: Right. You know, two things about that. One is the, we aren't invisible to the people who love us. And those are the people who really start to matter at our age is the people who love us, whoever they are. And the other thing that just really uh, bothers me a little bit is when women my age say, Oh, I just won't wear a swimsuit. And it's like mm-hmm. I'm in a rec center where women are pretty comfortable wearing swimsuits and they walk around naked or in their underwear in the dressing room. And we all go to water aerobics together and none of us have perfect or beautiful bodies. And some of us have bodies that are, you know, pretty overweight or, or pretty old and saggy or whatever. And for me, it's been such a joy to be around women who don't apologize for their bodies and who just enjoy being together in a swimming pool, splashing around or swimming laps or whatever. And so whenever I hear women say, Oh, I won't wear a swimsuit. I always feel sad for them that by it can in continuing to think what they look like in a swimsuit matters to the world. They diminish their own opportunities to enjoy themselves. Well, and it's internalizing those ageist kind mm-hmm. of
0: that's notions. Right. And, you know, and I think internalized ageism is such a a difficult thing because sometimes we're not even aware we're doing it when we're doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Right. And I think for many women, this is one of the, the chapters in Women Roy North, ageism is a worse problem than aging. The things mm-hmm. we tell ourselves, the way we restrict ourselves, the way the culture treats us, is actually a worse problem than aging itself. And I just, for some reason this week, I've heard two or three mother-in-law jokes, and those make me so angry because if we're lucky enough to have children who are lucky enough to find partners, we're all going to be mother-in-laws. And it's so hostile to just assume Mm. that, we won't be loved just because we have that label. And so that's an example of I really like to push back on that when I get a chance mm-hmm. and just go, mm-hmm. this isn't This isn't a funny joke, you know, any more than a racist <laughs> joke is a funny joke.
0: Right. No, that's important to underscore that. Absolutely. So let's see. Chris from Lancaster the person who has the group of people meeting together to listen she says how might we as a handful of mature women take a next step from this call to support one another and row together and she says note this question was collaboratively crafted by a handful of mature women gathered together to listen to this interview
1: Well, I mean, first of all, Chris, I would say you're already on your way. You have a group of women that have gathered together, and that's one of the most important things. And whether that is a book club or whether that's a writing group, whether that's a group that likes to go on walks together or have slumber parties or get together for coffee – it doesn't matter. I mean, one of the things I think is really important with old friends or with groups is that in those groups you pick topics conversationally that it, that encourage you to grow and explore your lives. Like for example, one topic I was at a holiday dinner this year and, and one the host introduced a very good conversational topic which was what would you like to grow and what would you like to learn? How would you like to grow in 2020? Well, that's a good topic. And and then mm-hmm. if people are talking that way, if they're talking about, you know, ways they want to change, change up their life, ways they want to improve uh, their skills for, say, building a good day, you can have support around that. And also, I think there's a lot to just be said for joy. I mean, just figuring out ways to get with women friends and be happy. You know, I had a, a friend whose husband died last year and our women group of friends did the funeral. One of us sang, mm. I did the eulogy, another one read love poetry that the wife had written for her husband before he died. And women friends can can really build these wonderful shelter belts for each other. That mm. that help help everyone in that shelter belt feel comforted and protected in the years ahead. I like that concept, shelter belt. <laughs> I think that's nice. So
0: I, I have from a number of people, Joan from Menlo, California and there are others but who who just you know, just say I loved your book and try to incorporate some of the wisdom in it in my life and she was from California, went to UC Berkeley also, certified Hmm. retirement coach, and just that your books have helped her in the raising of her children um, and herself at this stage of life. Penny from New York says you speak of solitude and the value of this. However, you also speak of the importance of friends and of being connected. And her question is, is it that you need to have both?
1: Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Everything is both. You know, we both... We both know we want to be connected to other people, and most of us want solitude absolutely
0: right and I think the part of what you've been talking about is how to and it's tied into how to say yes and how to say no, so we absolutely. You know, we can figure out how to have those boundaries and how to how to develop that, but you know a delight having you here and to be able to talk with you and I just wonder if you know what would be a final takeaway I mean I had a whole list of questions for you but there's never Mm -hmm. enough time Mm -hmm. but I think you've you've said so many beautiful things There was if I could just ask say one other thing because I know you say there haven't been role models but I think there have been you're one of them other people are role models plus the quotes you have are all from women and many of them are for example from Eleanor Roosevelt who you know
1: so I wonder if yeah, I do- loved Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. Well, and of course <laughs> she's a wonderful a bit, role model, yeah. and and I yeah. don't want to minimize my grandmothers, my aunts. They were powerful role models to me, and and they were wonderful women, and I learned so many lessons from them. What I really meant was role model in a more limited sense, in that <laughs> never before in the history of the world has there been a large demographic group of women. Who came of age, we came of age in the 60s when women's rights became a big issue. And we've been an assertive group of women who are also going to live much longer than any generation of women has ever lived. And so the ways that our grandmothers lived their lives as they aged or our mothers, those aren't, those aren't, uh, very good prototypes. For us, we're going to likely live much longer, be healthier, and as, as everyone knows, we have a very different kind of world to deal with than, than yeah. even our mothers did 30 years ago.
0: That that is very true. So thank you for clarifying that. So what would be your final comment that you'd like to make, or final takeaway as we say goodbye? this afternoon.
1: Well, the final chapter of the book is called Northern Lights, and mm-hmm. I really think that one of the greatest blessings of this life stage is that because we slow down, because we have better skills for saying present and being grateful, we're really primed for bliss. And one of the things that has happened to me much more as I've aged and and other women talk about this too is we just have this these moments when we the universe just seems filled with grace and love and and we're utterly present and utterly awestruck by the beauty of something or the joy of something and it may be something very simple like just looking over at our partner's face and realizing how much we love that person or it may be something very complicated like Driving out to de- hear the sandhill cranes on their, their crane migration to Nebraska and lying under the stars and having those beautiful cranes fly between us and the moon and just realizing how extraordinary it is that we can be there for that moment. Mm-hmm. But we're more, we're, we're more, we have a greater capacity for awe and bliss as we open ourselves mm-hmm. up. To all that is happening to us and take it in and grow from it. So it's a wonderful life stage. I agree. It is. And I just, so Tom from Copenhagen
0: just adds, and I just want to say, he says, I love your story also about the cactus with the pears and thorns. Mm-hmm. And he says, Thank you for a wonderful book. That's true. That was what you were. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, that was that's a beautiful place. Maybe this will get people into saying, I need to go read that book. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing with you and um I'm glad you mentioned about the final section of Northern Lights and this mm-hmm. you know this this whole idea of, you know, even with the knowledge of less time ahead that it, it just makes the life we have much more precious and the, you know, being able to have gratitude and joy and bliss as you say and, and your book is a testament to that with the examples and all. And so I want to thank you for being a role model and sharing and your wisdom of being of the same generation that I and many people on the call are and writing this wonderful book. And thank you all for being here and thanks again, Mary, for, for being my guest. Take care. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes or download our free retirement transition guide. Visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.